Let's pray. Lord, thanks again for this morning and that your presence is here with us. We just ask, Jesus, that you would open our hearts to your word and that you would strengthen and challenge and transform us to be more and more like you. In your name, amen. So I was thinking, I was looking at these verses. I think, uh, I think we'll focus on verse 26. And uh, I thought, you know, we better put that into practice this morning. So pair up. No, I'm just kidding. Did any of you look at what verse 26 is? We're, uh, we're not going to do that. <laughs> Some of you now have read it. There you go. Um, so we're just, we're just going to leave that part. Uh, what I am going to do, though, is, is walk through this passage. This is Paul's final words uh, to the church. And so it's a lot of sort of like practical advice and like imperative statements of like, just do this stuff, you guys. <laughs> it's like, hey, church, here's some stuff you should be doing. And so we're going to walk through it. And I'm going to treat it uh, in that kind of way because it's just it's, it's the same sort of way that Paul uh, communicates it. The first thing that Paul does in verses 12 to 15 is he talks about prioritizing healthy relationships in the church. That's the first bit. And then in verses 16 to 22, he talks about a personal devotion, your personal devotion to God. So the first thing he says is, is talks about relationships with each other, then your relationship with God. And then the last thing he says, which kind of cap it off, is this promise that God himself empowers us to live for him through Jesus, that he is sanctifying us. And so as much as there's a call to do some things, like there's a call to action as a people, it's also recognizing you are not fully able going to sanctify yourself. God's the one who sanctifies you. And to be in step with that work that he is doing in you, here's some practical things you can do. Does that make sense? So I feel like it's helpful because sometimes we can get caught up on the, on the stuff that we're called to do and think of it as works and, you know, we need to do this stuff to be right with God. And that's true, but, but we, we act out of response to what Jesus has already done for us at the cross, right? We're not working to save ourselves. We're not working to earn something. We're, we're working out a holy life in response to what God has already done for us through Jesus. He's already invited you into salvation. And if you've responded to him, you're already saved and redeemed. And now we live out of that life. Similar to once you're married, you live in response to your vows. It radically changes your life, right? In the same way, once you're in relationship with Jesus, it changes how you live. You don't do the stuff to get married. You get married and then do the stuff. And it's the same thing here. So he assumes you're already in relationship with God. What does that look like in relationships in the community? What's that look like in living for Jesus and then keeping, first and foremost, it's God who sanctifies us? So that's, that's kind of the gist of the last bit here. He ends with these instructions, first, in our relationships with each other, and first, among that, between the people and the leaders in the church, or the people and the pastors, as it will. And look at again at verse 12 and 13. He says, Respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. There's three sort of facets of pastoral ministry that Paul points to here. He says that uh, a pastor's work is labor, labor among you. It's hard work. It can be challenging. He says they work over you in the Lord. There's a sense of leadership, uh, of calling, that they are over, but not over you in some self-serving, 
domineering, abusive way, but over you in the Lord, which means that pastors are entrusted to steward and guide and shepherd the people in the way that Jesus would. And then thirdly, he says, and they admonish you. And a lot of that has to do, admonishing has to do with encouraging, but it also has to do with warning and correcting. And so there's a call here in, in church leadership and in pastoral ministry to, be, again, be guiding the people well. And often that's done through the preaching and teaching ministry of the church. So you've got work among the people, which is sort of the priestly task of pastoral ministry. And then you've got leadership over the people, which is sort of the regal or kingly task. And then the teaching ministry to the people, which is the prophetic task. And you can see mirrored here the threefold office of Jesus uh, at work in the pastoral ministry in the church. We talked about the threefold office, was it last fall? I think it was. I can't remember exactly. As I was preparing for this message, came across on Forbes.com, there was a post which listed the job of a pastor as the fifth toughest leadership role. So I thought, well, that's pretty good, seeing as I only work a day a week, right? People often tell me, what's it like just working on Sundays? That's brilliant. Just, just wonderful. A senior pastor who told, uh, talked to Forbes about this article, he said this. He said, you're scrutinized and criticized from top to bottom, stem to stern. You work for an invisible, perfect boss. And you're supposed to lead a ragtag gaggle of volunteers towards God's coming future. It's like herding cats, but harder. And there's some truth to that. But Paul assumes that the pastors in, uh, under his care in the new churches that are being planted are called to lead and to love and to, to steward and shepherd the people well. And that includes a measure of teaching and encouraging and rebuking and guiding and all the work that goes into that. So he sets out the pastor's job to, to work well, to labor, to lead, to admonish. And then he calls the people to respect and esteem them in love. And uh, I know sometimes that's harder uh, than, it, than it is to actually do in practice. But there's a call to, to, love, to love those who labor over you. And then he says to be at peace among yourselves. This is the last bit of verse 13. Be at peace among yourselves. And that means that within the church we need to deal with hardships and we need to deal with disagreement and forgive each other, even though that is very challenging, to seek to forgive each other, even if the other party doesn't always want to forgive. And uh, that's, that's hard, but it's very clear. There's not a lot of extra interpretation required here, is to be at peace among yourselves. And part of that means also the, the call to work out disagreements in the body is also a call in some way to not be so, I, I want to be aware of how I say this, to not be so, hmm, uh, to not let the, the hurts of our past, obviously those hurts have a, a significant play a significant role in how your identity is shaped, right? But, but the call, the clear call in Scripture is to work out the disagreement, to try to, you know, forgive each other and, and be at peace among yourselves. So there's a call in Scripture that is essentially says, don't let the trauma from your past, which is significant, it's not dismissing potential past trauma, but to not let the trauma of your past so 
identify you that you can't move in any way past it. And that's not to downplay, you know, serious brokenness or breakdown in relationships that can happen. But don't let, the, don't let disagreement, even in church or trauma, define you in such a way that it starts to override your number one identity as a child of God. And so if your hurt starts to take place, you know, almost first place in your soul so much that that is shaping you more than who you are in Jesus, um, then there's an issue. And, and it's not just about blaming the other person for whatever they may have done to hurt you. Um, you're, you're supplanting what God says about you with how you feel about yourself and with what happened in the past. And that can be kind of dangerous. And it's, it's easy to kind of live in a sort of victim mentality of how you've been hurt. Um, but yet, and yet, I don't want to downplay the hurt because that's very real, right? But it's easy to almost succumb to that and not hear what God says is true about us. And so if you've, if you've chosen Jesus, you are first a disciple. Uh, you are first called to follow him. You're a child of God. And yes, there's hurt along the way, but we're called to love our enemies, even those that hurt us. And that's incredibly challenging. Um, but we follow a, a savior who fled uh, and died for the people that wanted to kill him. Uh, he let, let them do it and love them to the end. That's who we follow. Uh, and so obviously there, there's a lot of wisdom and discernment to kind of navigate that well. You know, that's, there's a lot involved in that, especially if you're working through past trauma. Um, but God still invites us to see that trauma and hurt in light of who he is and what he says is true about us, not the other way around. So just to make, make a point of that. Be at peace among yourselves. And I think also it's worth saying that's a process, right? It's not like you can just instantly, now we're good. You know, we're just, it's all good. Um, sometimes that just is letting other things fester. So there's a process, I think, in, in learning to be at peace together. And, and the Bible invites us, God invites us to, to engage in that process well, uh, even though that can be very difficult at times. So that's, that's what I want to say about that. Verse 13. Now verse 14. He says, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. This could also be translated as, like, warn the irresponsible. And there's a sense of urgency. It's like Paul, Paul is telling them, you need to deal swiftly with certain people in the church. I think that's interesting. It, he, at first, he's, like, he deals with the issue of respect, and he's like, respecting like, your pastor is like, that's fairly that's important. But when he gets to this point, now there's an urgency. Like, you need to deal with problem people and because if that's left unchecked it's just going to breed like bitterness and brokenness in the church and it's going to actually like affect the testimony of the church if it's just perceived as sort of breeding ground of bitterness and stuff and as i was kind of researching and thinking about what might be meant as admonishing the idol you know what would that look like today i think I think we could probably think of a few examples. One would be maybe the person in the church who's like incredibly gifted but just doesn't want to serve in any way at all. Just don't want to participate in anything. But like they actually have a lot to give. And God invites them to use their gifts and their callings and their talents. But they're just like, yeah, I'm good. I just don't, I just don't want to. Right? I'm good. I don't feel like dealing with it. Um, another one who, who would need to be warned, again, admonishing the idol or warning the irresponsible, 
one author said, it's the opinionated busybody who just criticizes everyone and everything. And uh, I, I know some people like that in my life, and you're just like, come on, let's try and work together, right? Um, or it may be the person who who's just always feels threatened. It's always feels threatened by things that are happening maybe in the church or by change, and so it just creates more and more tension. And so you need to, you need to, you need to address those things and those people uh, in a way that is loving and caring and good. Um, but Paul says you need to deal with it. Uh, there's a sense of urgency, uh, or else it will affect the overall culture of the congregation. And I think it's paired also with this next bit because he says, "Help the weak," or sorry, "encourage the faint-hearted." help the weak, be patient with them all. There's this sense of, of lots of times in church there's people who are not doing well. If you didn't know, showed up today. It's because we're the group of people who know we're sinners, right? Not because we've got it all figured out, but because we all realize we didn't have it figured out. And that's what gets us, that's what binds us together. And so you can either be uh, really kind of overconfident and kind of overly opinionated. Paul says you need to warn and admonish those ones but you can also be really kind of underconfident and just feel like you're the worst person ever and paul calls us to encourage those who need to be lifted up uh, those who lack confidence or those who are on the fringes maybe and their pain or their grief has kind of brought them down and paul says you need to you need to comfort them they don't need a rebuke like the idle person they need help to stand up again and uh, for those who lack physical or mental or emotional strength, uh, there's a call to come and stand alongside them. And then be patient with them all. Be patient both with the, the person in the church who's frustrating and the person who lets you down <laughs> and the person who's somewhere in between to seek to be patient with all of them. And uh, part of that means, in summary, what does he say, right? See that, this is verse 15, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil but always seek to do good to one another and everyone. Everyone, so one another meaning in the church, but also everyone, like everyone even outside the church, right? That that's kind of the attitude that we're called to have. So in a sense, summarily, summer, 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 in summation, I'm going to change how I say that. Yeah, to summarize it all, essentially, that'll work. Yeah, that really switched it. He says, listen, just don't repay anyone evil for evil. Like if someone's hurt you don't retaliate try to love them we just refuse to retaliate that's part of part of the call and i think one of the most difficult aspects of being a church is is learning to try to get along with each other it's it's really it's really hard and uh all of us the you know the longer you've been in church the longer the probability that you've probably been hurt by someone in church um we all face that that reality all all the time simply by being together where we can get angry or we want to kind of slander the other person or we want to gossip about them and talk about things they said and what they did and how bad it was and uh, what do we do when we're feeling like that and paul says pursue the good like just period pursue the good pursuing love and peace for that person is not contingent on whether you think they deserve kindness or not we can't control how others treat us, but we can control how we respond. So that's the first part of the passage, is, is Paul stressing the value of healthy relationships between the people, the pastors, and people, and each other. 
And all that to say is our church life, folks, really matters. Really matters. Enough that Paul, writing to a fledgling church, decides this is what's worth including at the end. Uh, It's not a list of how to pray. It's not a list of worship songs. It's not a list of how much money to spend on missions and how big the building should be. It's It's not even about ministries. It's about getting along with each other. And so that tells you, hey, we're in good company. If, if, if it, as a church, there's, there's issues to address, well, that's been going on for a long time in, in the church. And that doesn't scare God. And in fact, he's quite capable of coming and, and bringing his life and his goodness and his healing to bear in a congregation that's real, with real people, with our own, our own issues and brokenness. And he wants to work in and through that. Um, it's worth remembering, too, that when we're hurt in church, it's easy to think, man, I just, like, this is kind of dumb. I don't really feel like doing this anymore. Um, and in those moments, it's worth remembering, like, the church is not our idea. The church is God's idea. And if that's true, then we need to, we need to honor and respect the fact that God himself calls us to life together. And that means facing some of this stuff. And that means if you're a Christian, you're called to be part of a local body of believers. That's God's intention for you. Writer Tim Challies puts it this way. I thought this was quite fitting. He says, the local church is the way God intends to accomplish his mission in the world. It's primarily through the local church that God wants to make himself known. Of all the evangelism strategies in the world, of all the ministries in the world, none is more central than the local church. And then he makes this point. He says, it's interesting to note that Paul considered his ministry in an area fulfilled, not when every person was reached, but when a church had been planted. Paul knew that the churches there were how the gospel would then spread out into individual neighborhoods. Local churches do local evangelism. The church is God's plan, and it's God's mission. So this is more than just, you know, a social club we do on Sundays, right? This is part of fulfilling God's mission in the world. Someone else made the, made the illustration kind of this way. Like you go to a gym, for those of you who maybe are blessed to do such a thing, you go to a gym for training in physical fitness, And in the same way, you could think we come and be the church for training in spiritual fitness. And that means, just like going to the gym, it doesn't always feel good, does it? Sometimes it's really challenging. And sometimes it's really stretching. Um, But that's part and part of keeping up in it is part of growing you to be more spiritually fit than once you were, right? You would say if you're into bodybuilding in any sense, there's moments where it really hurts, but there's greater good that's being done even in the midst of the stretching thing that hurts. Um, You wouldn't say, oh, I'm hurting. Clearly the exercise is terrible. It might be, oh, I'm hurting in the church. This is something that in my heart, maybe I need to look at, or in the heart of someone else that then I need to look at. I don't, I don't maybe know exactly, but something's going on that needs to be addressed, right? And to walk into that. And it's in the church that we, we learn how to worship and how to be cared for and how to care for other people, um, how to serve beyond ourselves, how to, how to submit to authority, 
Um, but you'll likely only choose to be part of a church if you've chosen to make God a priority in your life. And that's where Paul goes in the second section here in verses 16 to 22. So he moves from talking about relationships with each other to our relationship with God. And there's eight imperatives about your personal devotion to God. Eight, eight challenges, you could say. They're not commands, or they're not suggestions, they're commands. They're not occasional practices for when you kind of feel like it. They're meant to be sort of regular habits of cultivating a with God life. So what are they? It's the holy kiss. No, I'm kidding. It's not the holy kiss. Uh, the first one, verse 16. Short verse, right? If you want to memorize a verse today, you can memorize this verse. You are good to go. I memorized a verse of scripture. Verse 16. Rejoice always. Good. Good to go. Rejoice always is the first one. And you might think, like, given all of the nonsense we just talked about, really? All of the potential hurt and all of the brokenness, uh, how do we do that? Out of all the pain and sorrow in our past and in our lives, how do we live that out? Well, part of it is remembering that joy is not something we're called to drum up in ourselves. Joy is something that we learn in, in living out in our lives as we abide in God. And, and there's verses that talk about, um, right, that the, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit's work within you is joy. And so you can have a deep-seated sense of joy even if your life is kind of falling apart. Like even though things are a mess, you might go, but deep down I know Jesus has got me and I'm okay. Um, I, I can still be sad about things in my life and worried about things in my life and wondering what's going to happen, but I can have a deep-seated joy knowing uh, that God's got me, and I'm abiding in him, and he abides in me. And I think that's a, a, sort of a, a deeper uh, joy, um, even in hardship. I think of Romans 14, 17 says, the kingdom of God is about living a life of goodness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so this isn't something that we just do. We don't turn on being happy. Happiness and joy are not the same thing, right? You can be sad but joyful. Um, and you can also pretend to be happy and be miserable, right? Um, so the call is to joy, not to happiness. You might be sad. You might be lamenting, but it can still have joy deep down that God's got you and that things will be okay. So joy is the first one. Rejoice always. And then the second one's also kind of seemingly difficult to attain. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. And... <laughs> I know people have talked about this in the past. I've heard people ask, like, what is that? What do you, how do you do that? Does that mean, like, I'm just saying stuff in my head, like, all day? Like, I'm just kind of reciting stuff? I mean, it can be that you're reciting stuff. Like, that can be okay. Um, but the idea here is, is like a, a prayerful, it's almost like a mental attitude of prayerfulness. That as you go about the day and you're conscious through the day, you're realizing I am in personal fellowship with God at every moment of this day. God is with me in my work. He's with me beside me as I'm resting on the couch. He is with me as I'm eating this meal. He's with me as I'm trying to argue with my children. You know, he's with me in all of these areas of my life. And it's not as though, like, he's kind of off at the distance. Like, he's right here with me. And so I live my life then with an awareness of the presence of God here and now, and I'm in communion with him. And that means sort of the thoughts of my mind change, because it almost becomes more like dialogue with God through the day, instead of just me kind of 
living something internally over here. There's a consciousness of, of God is with me. I'm cultivating the presence of God in my life. And there's a prayerful attitude that comes along with that. And also an uh, attitude of, of thankfulness, of gratitude in the circumstances of life, which is verse 18, right? Give thanks in all circumstances. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Then he says, verse 20, do not quench the spirit and do not despise prophecies. When it comes to charismatic gifts, there's two ditches you can fall into. <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, that are equally, I would say, uh, not biblical. Um, the first one is you can despise charismatic gifts and the work of the spirit altogether and just say, it's too messy, let's just not do it at all. And clearly, it's just really broken, and there's a lot of flesh going on, and there's a lot of weirdness, and sometimes there is a lot of weirdness. And there is sometimes a lot of weirdness that's not good, by the way. Um, but it's too difficult to manage, so let's just not do it at all. And I had a conversation with a guy a couple weeks ago who was from a different denomination. He was not from here, but I don't want to paint the denomination poorly. He was from a, tr he was from a denomination that would not believe in charismatic gifts for today. Let's put it that way. And he said, often the reasoning was, like, look at how poorly that can go over here and how people got really hurt, so let's just not do it at all, right? And then he was saying, yet, I know in my own life and experience, sometimes God does move, and he is at work, so how do you, like, navigate that without falling in, oh, like, off the deep end into weirdness or, like, new age stuff, right? So we had a conversation about, like, how to do that. Um, as a Christian and kind of in leadership as well. So that's the one the one ditch is you can just go It's all terrible, and I just don't want to do any of it The the other ditch is to say it's all good and God's in all of it And there's no discernment required at all just like fire hose wide open the whole thing and That's also dangerous like really dangerous because people can get really hurt um when we say something spiritual and charismatic and God's at work, and it's really not. Like, it's really not. And one measure for that is, um, well, you always line it up with Scripture, but the important thing to note is your emotions about a thing aren't necessarily what's real about a thing. That's true about all of life, actually. How you feel about something isn't usually... Your emotions are not a good indicator, always, of what's true. Um, and especially of your own self, actually. Right? Um, that goes back to knowing who I am in Jesus, not how I feel about myself, uh, is really important. So just because a person has a very emotional experience doesn't mean it's Jesus. The test of the thing is whether the Spirit of God is actually at work. And you can figure that out by whether it's aligning with Scripture and whether you're discerning about what's happening in the moment. So that's what Paul says, right? Do not quench the spirit means don't, so don't go off the end where you just say none of it. Don't despise prophecies as an example of charismatic gifts. But what does he say to do? He doesn't say it's all fine and wide open. What's he say? You test everything. And you hold fast to what's good. So there's a call in, in Paul. Paul assumes New Testament churches are charismatic by the way. That was just kind of part and parcel of, of what the churches were like. So there's spiritual gifts happening. People were speaking in tongues and people were getting healed and prayed for and people would have prophetic words and stuff. Not unlike what we do on a Sunday morning. But Paul's saying um, you need to discern 
and test what happens to make sure it's good. Just because it's going on doesn't mean it's good. And there's a lot more you could say, like 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, 15 are all about that sort of thing, navigating that as a church. Um, so, but Paul's saying, don't, don't fall off either end. Just because it seems like a, like a good time, good Holy Spirit party, doesn't mean it's okay. So, because there can be a lot of flesh involved in that. So just be aware. But also don't just cut it all out altogether just because it could be messy. Um, there's a, often the Christian life is living the middle way between two extremes. And that's very much the case here. So he calls us to be discerning. Um, but, but also not to just despise stuff. If it's happening, it's okay, but to test it well, to discern it well. So here's like a really practical example. Um, if, if someone feels they have a word from the Lord, often what will happen is, and you're welcome to do this if you have a word from the Lord, uh, they'll come up to me and they'll say, hey, Nick, I'm feeling this. I feel like God is saying this. And they tell me kind of like, here's what I'm thinking, you know. And then I run that through like a Nicholas, Nicholas's quick filter of like, does that seem okay or not? And a lot of that is just, you know that, you get to know that by kind of trying to steep yourself in God's word and also praying, Lord, does, where does that fit? Is it okay or not? And so you kind of have this moment with Jesus of like, yes, that seems okay. Yes, or something about it maybe needs a little bit of a tweak. Um, whatever it might be. And then often the person will say, okay, now you, like, I've told you. It's on you. And so then I have to make the call of, is this something the person is called to say to the whole congregation right now? Maybe. Is it something that needs to be said later? Is it something they need to say or something I can say? Um, but there's a discernment process that happens in that moment. That's why it's not just an open mic, right? Because I've, I don't know if you guys remember this, one of my first years of pastoring, um, it was a morning Sunday school. We used to do adult Sunday school before the service started. And uh, a transient, like, hitchhiker guy walked in. And he had something he wanted to say. And so he came up. And in that moment, there was only maybe 10 of us. So it was, it was not crazy, right? It was not a full church. And, and so we, I hold the mic and let him share. And it was fine. It wasn't weird. It was more fine than some of the other stuff that has been said over the years. Um, and, then, and then we let him go, and we thanked him and encouraged him. But there's a discerning that happens there, right? Um, there's also the story of the guy who, who had a prophetic, or a, what's a prophetic word or a word in tongues? It doesn't really matter. They're almost identical. Anyway, had a word to say from the Lord. I was speaking in tongues. So he gives this word in tongues, and everyone's kind of waiting to see if there's an interpretation, Right? And uh, no one was moving on it because it wasn't, it wasn't an appropriate word. So the guy decides to interpret his own word. That's usually sketchy, by the way. And his whole word was all a football analogy of running. And it was just a mess. Like, it was not of God at all. And so the church heard it and went, no. No, no thanks. And then just carried on. Right? That's part of testing. Testing the spirits and hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And that means not just rejecting something outright. We don't want to denounce all the gifts or any sort of manifestation of the spirit, but we need to ponder it and digest it. And that's true, too, if someone comes up to you and says, I think God is telling me this for you or for your life, or I just feel like God is, wants me to tell you this. 
you don't just take all that without discerning it, right? You're, you're supposed to be open to that, and then you run that through a discernment process. Does that align with Scripture? Uh, you talk to people in spiritual authority in your life and say, hey, this person shared this word with me. Does that kind of resonate with you? Does that make sense? Um, you need to, you're meant to do that work. You don't just go, oh, yeah, brilliant. Of course, Jesus wants me to buy an O. Henry bar and move to Wabagoon. Of course. It's like, no, there's a discernment process involved, right? Um, and that's part of what Paul challenges them to live out in their lives. And then finally, again, wrapping it up, abstain from every form of evil. So Paul calls the church to live in community. He gives them a range of practical principles for living in relationship with God. Um, and then he ends with this, this call to sanctification. Mark Howell, he puts it this way. He says, the church's leaders need to take their call seriously. The church's members need to love one another genuinely. And the entire church is to love God devotedly. And everyone is, is pursuing Jesus and life together. But I love this ending, this encouragement right at the end, verse 23. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Man, I don't feel blameless very often. I feel like there's lots I could be blamed for. But because of Jesus and his forgiveness and his grace, we're able to let go of our own brokenness and our sinfulness so that before God we are made pure and washed clean made alive so that when he comes again he doesn't see Nick and all of his all of his goofiness he sees someone that he died for who he loves and he sees you in that way too the God of peace sanctify you completely that God is doing the work and the life that we live in him comes out of our relationship in him we can trust Jesus you're, you're shaping us you're changing us and so the call then is for us to be open to that sanctifying work, that he would do that work in us. And remembering that God loves you. He loves you. He calls you into community, into church. He calls you to take your personal holiness seriously. To take those steps to grow in him. But also to remember that Jesus is sanctifying you. Jesus is at work in you in a way that is beyond what you can measure and know. That through the indwelling presence of the Spirit, He will faithfully bring to pass that which we get, He has set for you. What I wanted to do um, this Sunday, just before we head to the table, is I included in the bulletin this spiritual growth inventory. And this is a real kind of practical way for you to reflect on this passage and, and choose to live it out or ask God, invite God into an area of your life where maybe you need to grow. And so I encourage you to use this tool. It's just to really reflect on your own character, your own formation as a disciple. And what, I, what we've done is, is taken a number of the principles that were discussed today um, from, from the issues of the, the relationships between each other, the potential issues there, and then the relationship you have with God. And, and just to do your own sort of self-evaluation. How am I doing in these areas? And as you walk through those, uh, there may be an area where you realize, uh, this is a real struggle. This one's really tough for me. 
And if that's the case, then I just want to invite you to, to ask the Holy Spirit to come and do a work in your life in that area. Maybe it's regarding rejoicing. Maybe it's regarding prayer. Maybe it's regarding the presence of the Spirit and being open to Him. Maybe it's about being at peace and patient with fellow Christians, that that is often a struggle for you. Maybe you have difficulty, you know, respecting or those who are in leadership or valuing their work. Maybe it's difficult to, to seek to have a joyful and grateful attitude. So whatever that might be, um, ask, ask God to help you identify what might be really challenging and then pray into that and ask him uh, to do that work in you because he's the one who sanctifies you. So I'm going to leave that with you to do. That's your homework, as it were. Uh, let's pray, and we're going to head towards the table. Lord, today I want to thank you that uh, you promise to, to grow and to shape and to transform us, Lord, as we walk with you. And you're faithful. You're faithful to do that work. Lord, sometimes we can be overwhelmed with uh, trying to do everything right and trying to shape our lives a, a certain way and we're, at some point in our lives we'll, be a, we'll fail at that, Lord. So we just thank you that you are the one who, who leads and guides and shapes us. Lord, as we come to this table, we are well aware that there's likely relationships in our lives that are broken or there's things that we do need to address and sometimes we're scared to do that or we've tried and it doesn't seem like we get anywhere or we don't know how to proceed in that. But this morning, Lord, we just pray as we are reminded again of this table that uh, we want to have an attitude that would work towards forgiveness and restoration, even if in this moment we might not know exactly how to do that. And Lord, the only way that we can do that is in and through you. And so we want to come to the table today recognizing that you're the one who fills and sustains us. You're the one who leads and guides us. It's only by you and in you that we can move and, and live and have our being and follow you. Lord, that it's by your blood that we're set free. It's through the cross that our sins are forgiven and washed away. And it's through you alone that we're welcomed and, and invited back into relationship. And that's what this table is all about. So, Lord, I just pray that, uh, that as we come to receive this morning, that you would, uh, Lord, beckon us to, to, to come again and to eat and to drink and to, to know that you still welcome us even in our brokenness. You still welcome us even, even when we don't live all these things from this passage out well that you still invite us and I pray Lord that as we would come it would be an act of, of recommitting ourselves to you that we want to follow you Lord because on the night that you were betrayed you took bread and you blessed it and you broke it and you gave it to your disciples saying take and eat this is my body given for you do this in remembrance of me Lord, in the same way, after supper, you took the cup, saying, this cup is my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, in remembrance of me. Lord, your word says that as often as we gather and we eat this bread and drink this cup, we're proclaiming 
your death until you return, for on that day we will eat again with you in glory. This is the appetizer that we look forward to, uh, the full banquet, Lord. So Jesus, as we come today, would you uh, fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit, would you pour down your presence upon us in these gifts. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Amen.